So let's generate our motivation. So in the Lamrim, they talk about uh, not listening to teachings like the three pots. So one pot is upside down. You try and pour something in and nothing goes in. So that's like us when we sit at teachings. Our mind is distracted and we don't really hear anything. The second pot is one that's right side up. So we're paying attention. Yeah, the water goes in, the teachings go in our mind, but the pot has a hole on the bottom. So they don't, the teachings don't stay there. We can't remember what we've heard. And the third kind of pot is one that's right side up, no hole in the bottom, but it's filled with gunk. So that's like our mind. It's We're there, we're listening to the teachings, but our mind is filled with all sorts of wrong motivations for listening to teachings. Maybe we want to learn something so we can be better than somebody else or learn something so that we can go teach and get offerings or who knows what kind of wrong motivation. So instead of being like any of those three pots, let's generate the bodhicitta and have a strong resolve to listen and practice the teachings and remember them so that we can attain awakening and be of the greatest benefit to living beings. So I was thinking that some people may wonder why we start at 15 minutes past the hour instead of exactly at the hour. Actually, the class starts exactly at the hour, but the first 15 minutes, everybody should be doing uh, the visualization of the merit, the refuge field, taking refuge, generating bodhicitta, the four immeasurables, um, the seven-limb prayer, making requests, and so on. And that's because when we first started the class, um, I was teaching the Gumchen Lamrim, and he went through all of that, and so we did it together. When we finished that text, then I said, everybody who's listening should do those practices for the first 15 minutes, and then we start the teachings. So those of you who weren't here many years ago when we did that, that's uh, that's your homework now. <laughs> okay? So we were talking about uh, karma. 
and ha- and intention karma and intended karma. So intention karma was our intention for doing something, and that is mental karma. And then intended karma are uh, whatever physical uh, and verbal actions that follow after the intention karma. Okay. And so then we started getting into exactly what were physical and verbal actions. Okay. And there's this whole idea of perceptible and imperceptible forms. And uh, we kind of were talking about that a little bit last week. So I went back and I opened up my file where I, you know, keep my notes about different topics, and I went to this one. And the notes, remember I told you I asked a lot of different people questions about this? I got so many different answers that are in that file. One says this, one says that. It's it's amazing. So it seems like it is a topic of debate as well. Um, So many people have views on it. And it seems like, uh, you know, the Vibhasakas accept it. And then we were saying the... uh, the Sautantrakas, Chittamadras, uh, Yogacharas, and uh, Svatantrakas say karma is always mental karma, always intention karma. And then the Prasangika, some say there's, uh, you know, imperceptible form, and some say no. The Galus seem to, to think that there is, and maybe the Nyingmas say no. And the others I don't know about, and probably within those, all the schools, everybody has different opinions anyway. So uh, we'll just go with what we have here and know that it's a topic where a lot of questions come up. Okay. But what people do agree about is that the second link of the 12 links is intention karma, okay? So, we'll be at, we're at the bottom of 296, physical and verbal karma, perceptible and imperceptible forms. Yeah, that's what I thought, but that's why I asked at the beginning. Okay, so let's just review it anyway, okay? So, we have the quote from Chim Jampe Yang, uh, where he said, uh, all forms are subsumed in three types of forms. Forms that are visible and obstructive, forms that are invisible but obstructive, and forms that are invisible and non-obstructive. Okay, and so visible and obstructive was like, you know, the table or the wall. Yeah, you can see it and it obstructs you from seeing what's beyond. And then invisible but obstructive is like sounds and smells and things like that, because uh, if you're perceiving a sound that's very loud, 
it obstructs hearing softer sounds. If you smell something that, that's quite powerful, it obstructs smelling more subtle smells. Okay, And then forms that are visible and non-obstructive, and these are the imperceptible forms. Okay, so in my uh, my little collection of notes about this topic, people I was asking, one said, one of the lamas said that uh, imperceptible forms were, you know, because I ask all all sorts of questions, you know, he said they were uh, like made of the subtle elements. Another lama said. Uh, they're they're intangible, so they're not made of of the elements. When I uh, think about imperceptible forms, then uh, you know the some of them are like dream objects, things in dreams, and also when meditators meditate on bones, the bone and they develop samadhi on that. Though there are bones there. So all these imperceptible forms, they're part of the form aggregate. But in terms of the constituents, yeah, they are objects of the mental consciousness. So if you see an imperceptible form, you know, like, like dreams are created by your mind, the bones in that meditation created by your mind. So then the imperceptible forms would be like that, also created by the mind. You can't see them. Okay. And then um, just to keep reviewing. Okay, so we're on the top of 298, right? Okay. So the treasury of knowledge speaks of three types of imperceptible forms. So remember the perceptible ones are the ones you can see with your eyes. Imperceptible are the objects of mental consciousness. Okay. So three types of imperceptible forms, ethical restraints, anti-restraints, and other imperceptible forms. Okay. So ethical restraints. Restraints. Um, the Sanskrit term is samvara. It's a word that comes in our uh, the mantras a lot. Okay, so it's referring to ethical restraints. So there's three kinds: the pratimoksha restraints, yeah, um, and the concentration restraints and the unpolluted restraints. So the pratimoksha restraints are of eight uh, types. Okay, so the precepts of male and female fully ordained monastics, training, so this was bhikshu and bhikshuni, training nuns or um, shikshamana, okay, male and female novices, so uh, shramanera and shramaneri. Sometimes it's shramanerika and sometimes it's shramaneri, so it's just different ways that people have of doing it. And then male and female lay followers, upasaka and upasika, and then uh, with the five precepts, and then lay followers with one-day precepts. So the one-day precepts, they're similar to, but not the same as the eight Mahayana precepts. There's some slight differences 
in the precepts themselves, but very, very small. But the main difference is the motivation, okay? And so these that are spoken up here of here are the Pratimoksha eight one-day precepts. And when you become an Anagarika at the Abbey, these are the ones that you take, yeah? And you get the precept body, and you can take them for a long, a certain period of time, time. So instead of taking them every day, you say, I'm going to take them for a year or for however long you say you're going to do it. Okay? So they're, so they're, they're different in that respect. And then some small differences in how you keep them. Okay. Um, so when we take the precept not to kill, steal, and so forth, an imperceptible form arises in us, that's called the precept body, okay, that acts like a dam that helps us restrain from doing that destructive action. So these ethical restraints remain until they are completely broken, voluntarily relinquished, or we die. So that's how those three end. Or, or that, I'm sorry, that's how those eight end. Either we completely break them from the root, they're voluntarily relinquished, give, you give them back, or you die. Yeah? So those, uh, the bodhisattva and tantric vows are different because the, pre- the pratimoksha vows, precepts, you know, deal with actions of uh, body and speech. So it's appropriate that they bring an imperceptible form. The bodhisattva and tantric precepts have to do more with the mind. So they're not creating an imperceptible form. Okay. So then the concentration restraint is possessed by beings who have meditative stability arising from the concentrations. So when you have the dhyanas, uh, I don't know if the if the being probably the beings the formless beings no they don't have them, okay yeah because they're formless so they're not going to get an imperceptible form, but the beings in the form realm uh, also get this imperceptible form. They don't actively you know take some kind of restraint but in uh, when you're reborn in that realm you uh, you don't all your non-virtuous minds are suppressed so it's as if you have that restraint that protects you against uh, negativity of course that can be uh, lost when you uh you know, when you die from that realm and go to a lower realm. Okay. And then the the unpolluted restraint is possessed by aryas in meditative equipoise. So when the aryas are in meditative equipoise, they're right speech and right action. So those are the two factors of the uh, eightfold arya path. They are imperceptible forms that are unpolluted by ignorance, okay? So, you know, right speech and right action, okay? So again, verbal and physical actions. Um, When you're an Arya and you're in meditative equipoise, you have all eight 
of the Arya Eightfold Path. So how, how do you have those two that are physical and verbal? They are imperceptible forms. Okay. Then the anti-restraints are uh, the opposite. This is the second type of uh, imperceptible form. Um, they're the opposite of restraining from destructive actions. So these arise due to someone's strong intention to act destructively and remain until that person gives up that profession or its motivation or until he dies. So examples are the anti-restraints of a butcher or an exterminator. Okay, so those people adopt certain profe uh, professions and they have the motivation to kill, for example. So uh, their mind is, has that negative, imperceptible form. And, you know, I would think that just like with the Pratimoksha, you're accumulating virtue as long as you're not breaking it. Probably with the anti-restraints, accumulating a lot of uh, non-virtue, even if you're not actively killing or or exterminating bugs or whatever. Okay. Um, okay. Then the third category of uh, imperceptible forms are other imperceptible forms, uh, and they arise by depending on holy objects, making firm promises, and acting with strong reverence or other positive motivations. So I was just thinking this one of anti-restraints. If you join a, a, an organization like the Oath Keepers, yeah, or the Three Percenters, or one of these things, you're, you, to join these organizations, you take a certain vow or pledge or whatever. And that kind of goes along with the purpose of the organization. And I would think that that probably creates some sort of imperceptible form too. Uh, you know, that stays with them until they die or until they change their ways. Mm -hmm. What about virtuous um, ethical um, vows taken by people of other non-Buddhist sects? Oh, it would be the same. If, if you're vowing virtue, then you're, you create an imperceptible form. Yeah, it doesn't have to be Buddhist. But you create a precept body then if you're taking precepts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people don't talk about it. They don't use those terms and so on. But it's just as similar the way karma applies, whether you believe in it or not. And rat poison is going to kill you, whether you believe it or not. So if you create a virtuous intention, you're going to get a preset body, whether you know what they are or not. Now, if, you, if let's say you're, you become a Catholic monk or nun. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So... Um, First, we're going to talk about so the, these other imperceptible forms depend on holy objects, making firm promises, and acting with strong reverence or other positive motivations. And there's some other things too. 
So the scripture of uh, on discernment, the Vinaya Vibhanka, uh, describes seven virtues relate, derived in relation to substances. So this is the one that you were looking for. Okay, so this is uh, uh, so these are meritorious, imperceptible forms. So there's seven of them. Okay, offering a resonance to the sangha. Okay, so building a place for the sangha to live, offering a prayer hall to the sangha, offering cushions or seats for the prayer hall, offering food regularly to the sangha offering food to travelers and guests, offerings useful, uh, offering useful items to the sick and to medical professionals, and offering food to the sangha at the monastery if it is difficult for monastics to go on alms round because of inclement weather. Okay, so these are seven actions that were pointed out uh, in the Vinaya Vibhanka. I would imagine that there's some other similar ones, you know, that, uh, you know, it says offering cushions for the prayer hall, but I would assume offering tables, offering the altar, the materials for the altar, things like that. Um, you know, so we're getting a general idea here. So the Buddha praised these virtues as being of, quote, of great fruit, highly beneficial, splendid, and enormous in nature. So the merit of those who offer these will unceasingly increase at all times, whether they are walking, sitting, sleeping, or waking. Okay? So you offer one of these things, one of these items, and the idea is that other people use them to create virtue. So when they're creating virtue, you receive an, an imperceptible form, a physical one probably, or it could be a, a verbal one if they're doing chanting. Okay? So things where you can see where you're creating the circumstances for others to uh, create virtue. So, for example... When we, uh, I mean, we want to build a Buddha hall, so this applies to that. Yeah. So everybody likes to to offer to the statues for the statues because those are definitely you can feel very virtuous when you offer statues. But this doesn't say it has to be offering statues. If you're offering the a Buddha hall. You know, you need many other rooms, too. You need a place to hang your coats. You need, you know, a tea counter. You need toilets. So uh, the thing is, when you offer, you don't in your mind have to uh, say exactly what you're offering for, but just for the whole thing. And then mentally you spread it out uh, to all the different things. But they're all necessary to create you know, virtue, okay? Um, offering food regularly to the Sangha. So what the Singaporeans did, I mean, that is it. Kuni, offering food, she's going to offer on the Merit Day of Miracles. 
So that's creating this, this kind of karma. And I would think actually, too, anybody who, who offers to the food fund, you know, and does that. Okay. Offering food to travelers and guests. Yeah, we do that when people come and, and visit. Okay, offerings useful, offering useful items to the sick and to medical professionals. So in 95 masks, we were involved with uh, some other Buddhist organizations in getting masks from China and shipping them to many hospitals. Okay. Um, and we made, yeah, making the masks and giving them to people. Okay. Uh, yeah, so all these kinds of things are, uh, when you're helping people, are create merit, yeah, which becomes an imperceptible form. And especially if you have the idea that you're doing these actions regularly, or in the case when you create a Buddha hall or a residence for the Sangha, yeah, um, whenever people use those, then there's, you know, you create virtue from it because your whole motivation is for people to, uh, to create virtue or in, the, in some of the others for people to recover their health or for people to be uh, free from poverty. Yeah. Okay. So our intention in making these seven offerings is that others will use them to create merit. When they do so, we accumulate a virtuous, imperceptible form. This imperceptible form continues until we die, unless it vanishes because we have strong afflictions or the prayer hall and so forth is destroyed. Maybe they eat the food. I don't know. But you offer it regularly, so it's replaced. Okay. At our death, the imperceptible form is lost but it's having ceased goes on to future lives. When suitable conditions arise, it will ripen and bring its happy result. So that's how you can get a result from an imperceptible form. Yeah, even though it's lost at the time you die, you have the having ceased that goes on. Remember the having ceased? No? Uh, you can look it up. They're going to come when, when we do samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. They're talked about in there. Another example of the third type of restraint is the imperceptible form that arises when we ask someone to perform a constructive or destructive physical or verbal action. For example, a military commander accumulates the karma of killing by ordering his soldiers to kill the enemy. Although he does not kill with his own hands, he accumulates the non-virtuous, imperceptible form of killing each time one of his soldiers kills. So that's pretty heavy for the commander. Yeah. The military commander will experience the suffering result of these actions of killing, as will the soldiers. When we tell friends and relatives to give donations to those in need, charities, and temples, 
we accumulate virtuous imperceptible forms when they make the offerings. Okay, so when your friends are going to Bogaya and you give them some money to offer. We used to offer money for candles, but I heard they don't allow candles anymore at the stupa, which is unfortunate. It's so beautiful. Or maybe fortunate because then all the wax isn't all over the place. Okay, but you know, whenever we encourage people to, uh, to do something virtuous, then we accumulate virtue. Yeah. So when somebody comes to you and says, I'm really exhausted, but I have to do the altar tomorrow morning, can you do it? You should enthusiastically say yes, okay, because you're going to create merit doing it, and the person who asked you is going to create merit doing it, okay? And that especially if somebody asks you to do something virtuous like that, and you go, why are you always asking me to do your chores? <laughs> yeah, then are you seeing offering to the Buddha as a chore that you really don't want to do, but you have to do? If you're thinking like that, then your way of thinking is wrong. Okay, so be aware when you know people ask you to step up and do something for them. You know, especially when it involves serving the Sangha. And if you complain, it's not fair, then, you know, you're losing the chance to create merit. Yeah? And the other person is also, you know, if they're asking you, you know, because they sincerely need help, they can also create merit from that. Okay, so Vasubandhu cites the above two situations, creating merit through certain material objects and accumulating karma when we order or ask others to perform an action as reasons to prove the existence of imperceptible forms. Okay, without imperceptible forms, our merit from offering the seven substances would not increase if later our mind were in a non-virtuous or neutral state. Okay, without, so, um, yeah, okay, our virtue wouldn't continuously increase if our mind were in a non-virtuous or neutral state, because if there were no imperceptible forms, because when people are using the things we offer to create virtue, yeah, but our mind is, is in a non-virtuous state. You can't have virtue implanted on a mind that's in an, a non-virtuous or a neutral state, okay? So you can't have, like, an intent. If that were just the intention, it couldn't be there because your mind can't be non-virtuous and virtuous at the same time. But you can accumulate an imperceptible form that is virtuous if your mind has to be, happens to be non-virtuous at that particular moment. Okay. So this is, you know, one of the reasons used to, to prove the existence of imperceptible forms. Okay. So here's another example. Without the existence of imperceptible forms, we could not accumulate non-virtue if our mind were in a virtuous state 
at the time someone we told to steal goes out and robs. Okay, so we tell somebody to go out and, you know, rob that piggy bank. Yeah, and they're creating virtue, but at the time they do it, our mind is, I mean, they're creating non-virtue. At the time they do it, our mind happens to be in a virtuous state. You're sitting there doing your practices or whatever. Yeah, so if it were just the intention, it, it couldn't go that person who asked them to rob the piggy bank couldn't accumulate the karma if there were no imperceptible forms. But since there is, you know, because you can't have a mind that has a non-virtuous intention accumulate a virtuous intention or vice versa, okay? But you can accumulate uh, an imperceptible form that is the opposite of what's going on in your mind at that time. Because... One is what's going on in your mind is a mental factor of intention. The form is a form, okay? Okay, so this is because we cannot accumulate destructive karma when our mind is in a virtuous state and cannot accumulate merit when our mind is in a non-virtuous state, okay? Furthermore, while in meditative equipoise on emptiness on the path of seeing, Aryas possess all branches of the Eightfold Path. If there were no imperceptible forms, they could not possess right speech, right action, and right livelihood at that time. Yeah, because uh, those have to do with physical and verbal things. Okay, so also the fact that precepts and oops, precepts and ethical restraints are imperceptible forms enables them to act as a dam that impedes transgressions. So some kind of form that you can't see, but that, you know, holds you back from doing something non-virtuous. While the explanation of imperceptible forms is found in the treasury of knowledge, a text expressing the Vibhasaka and Sautantrika tenets, many Tibetan scholars say it is also accepted by uh, prasangikas. To support this, they point to a passage in the discrimination of the five aggregates, a text attributed to Chandrakirti that describes imperceptible forms as, quote, any form that is a phenomena source that is neither visible nor obstructive and can only be perceived by the mental consciousness, such as ethical restraints, anti-restraints, and so on. Okay, so they use that to say, yes, the, you know, Chandrakirti said so, it's a text attributed to Trandakirti. We're not really sure who wrote it, but that's good enough. Yeah. Okay. So by saying that physical and verbal karmas are the mental factor of intention, Sautantrikas, Chittamantrans, and Svatantrikas have difficulty explaining what physical actions are and how physical movement of the body is karma. The Prasangika presentation is more aligned with conventions. 
they say that in the act action of prostrating, there is the physical karma that is a perceptible form, the form of the body moving. In addition, there is an intention that motivates that action, and that intention is the mental karma of prostrating. Okay. All tenant schools agree that the second link of dependent arising is the mental factor of intention when uh, the other branches of a karmic path are complete. So they all have to be complete to be the second link. The karma of harsh words or the karma of saving someone's life is the mental factor of intention, that's according to those schools, that motivates these actions. This intention leaves the karmic potential that brings forth a new rebirth. Okay. According to the Vaisakas and Prasangikas, imperceptible forms belong to the aggregative form but are, not, but are forms for mental consciousness. As such, they are included in the phenomenal source, not the form source. So when we talk about the six or twelve sources. When it, when it says um, the previous paragraph, all tenet schools agree that the second link of dependent origination is the mental factor of intention. Mm -hmm. So that includes prasangika and vajbhashika. Pardon? That includes the, pra, the vajbhashika and prasangika. Yeah. So that means then, like prasangika would say that if somebody kills, they, they do the action of killing. And if all four branches are complete, mm -hmm. um, the killing itself is is form is 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 form, mm -hmm. but it's not the second link. Um, it seems, yeah, that 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 isn't couldn't be the second link because uh, it doesn't go on to the next life. It ceases, you know. And so you couldn't accumulate karma that would ripen in after the next life. Yeah, it's only by by having a um, you know a, a a mental karma that plants a seed or a having ceased that does that. Unless we go back to the other thing when we were talking about the the imperceptible karma turns into a having ceased. Uh, when somebody dies, and it's carried that way. So my guess is they would say, okay, the person is killing, and that act of killing is is um, form, imperceptible yeah, The karma form. of the act. The karma. Oh, the karma but, is, is... But oh. the mental factor of intention, intention that's accompanying it, that becomes the second link. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, and then you also have the the original um, intention, and then the intention while you're doing doing the action. So those are both creating uh, results too, because the mental intention. You know, if you're planning to kill somebody, then that's going to be um, a mental. You know, one of the 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 mental non pathway of karma, of malice, and then at the time you're actually killing, that's going to be the karma of killing. Yeah. But 
when you get into this, this is where, you know, and you poke, it becomes a little bit unsatisfactory. <laughs> but, you know, you can see the reason why they need to, to assert an imperceptible karma. Yeah. I mean, the reasons make good sense, but when you start kind of poking at, at how that actually works, I don't know. Ask somebody who's wiser than me. Yeah. And then there's people who accept imperceptible and people who don't. So, even among the wise ones, <laughs> there seems to be some difference of opinion. So His Holiness says, I have a theory to explain why Vaivasikas and Prasangikas agree that, chandra, that uh, physical and verbal actions are form, whereas the other schools say they are intention. Vaivasikas are not very analytical. They understand things according to worldly conventions and the perceptions of ordinary people. In worldly conventions, we say, I heard her speak the truth. We saw him beat the dog. On the uh, basis of these ordinary conventions, we speak of physical and verbal actions as things that we see and hear as forms. And that's true. That's how we speak of them. Yeah. So tantricas, chitamadrins, and svatantricas posit things on the basis of there being objective phenomena that exist from their own side. The originator of the Svatantrika school, Baba Viveka, said in the blaze of reasoning, we, we also actually impute the term self to the mental consciousness conventionally. Because the mental consciousness takes rebirth, it is said, that it is the self. Okay, so they grasp a true existence. All schools who accept rebirth say that the self transmigrates. People who are unable to posit phenomena as existing by mere designation usually posit the mind, specifically the mental consciousness, to be the self since it, and not the body, is what transmigrates. Within our me the mental consciousness, only the mental factor of intention can be posited, um, can be pointed to as being karma. Why? When these people analyze actions while considering them to be objectively existent, they see that unless an intention is involved, an action cannot be karma. A boulder rolling downhill is action, but not karma. Thus they point to the mental factor of intention as the karma, and not the physical and verbal actions per se. That also makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, especially when you consider that bodhisattva and tantric precepts are, are intentions. According to the Prasangikas, if we analytically search for something that objectively exists beyond the conventional norm, we cannot find anything. They thus accept things as existing merely by convention 
And conventionally, we say we perceive our physical and verbal actions through our senses. For this reason, prasangikas accept physical and verbal karmas to be form. Okay? Because prasangikas are not trying to establish exactly what the karma is. They're just going by the conventions that we say, you know, I heard him say this or I saw her do that. Yeah. And and again, you know, when things are merely designated, yeah, you get this messiness. I mean, that's why the world is so messy. Whereas when we... That, and that's why, one of the reasons why we like everything being objectively existent, because then we can create exactly what it's supposed to be according to the definition, and it never wavers. Yeah. So, okay, so now um, another, the next section, called Gloomy and Bright Karmas and Their Effects. Um, so this is from the Pali tradition, but it uh, maybe it's in you know I mean it's it's the quote is uh, from the Majjhimunikaya. Maybe it's in the Tibetan tradition as well. But do I mention Vasubandhu in there? Oh, it's in the Abhidharma Kosha too. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, so, the Buddha spoke of four kinds of karma. These are the four kinds of karma declared by me after I had realized them for myself by direct knowledge. What for? There, are gloom, there is gloomy karma with gloomy results. There is bright karma with bright results. There is karma that is gloomy and bright with gloomy and bright results. And there is karma that is neither gloomy nor bright, with neither gloomy nor bright results, which leads to the destruction of karma. So how many possibilities between gloomy and bright? Four. Okay. So the first one, non-virtue, is gloomy karma with gloomy fruition. It is afflictive by nature, and produces disagreeable results in one of the three unfortunate states. Okay, so this is karma created, this kind of karma is created only in the lower realms. Okay, so born there, afflictive contact arises, leading to afflictive painful feelings, such as feelings experienced in the health states. I think our kitties have some pleasurable feelings somewhere in there, but uh, especially the health state's difficult. Okay, so the mind uh, is negative, and negative karma is uh, is created. Yeah. So bright karma and bright fruition is virtue included in the form realm. Okay, so opposite the hell realm than the form, the form realm. So the mental states of being in this realm are either virtuous or neutral. Their non-virtuous mental factors have been temporarily suppressed, so their actions do not produce the dukkha of pain. 
Form realm beings do not experience unpleasant feelings. Bright karma is created in a mind stream that is not mixed with negative thoughts. It brings a pleasant result that is unmixed with suffering in that being's mind stream. Okay? So it seems like the, the, the bright and the, the gloomy are in terms of uh, the action done and the result that it brings. And it seems to also be related to the realm that it is created in. Because if you live in a hell realm, your situation is so difficult that it's, it's difficult to create virtue. If you live, uh, if you're born in the form realm, uh, then your non-virtuous mental factors are suppressed. So you don't, you know, create non-virtue. Okay, then three is gloomy bright karma with gloomy bright fruition. So this is the virtue of the desire realm. Okay. So while so desire realm, yes, includes the hell realm, but I think it's talking more about other the more fortunate realms of the desire realm. Because I, I would think that the in the preta realm and the animal realm they do experience some happiness. Yeah. That's why we offer uh, do the preta offering at the end of meals. So while this karma is bright in that it is virtuous, it arises in a mind stream that also has non-virtuous thoughts, making it gloomy, bright virtue. So if you take human beings, yeah, we, we create virtue, so that's uh, a, a bright, something bright, karma. But our mind stream also is filled with non-virtue sometimes. So that's the gloomy part. Yeah. So it yields pleasant results, but the mind stream in which it ripens also experiences painful feelings. Okay, Making its result gloomy bright. Human beings, some beings in the unfortunate realms, such as pet animals, and some devas, uh, experience this. Okay, like the, the form realm. No, the, the um, desire realm devas would experience this. Okay, then the fourth is unpolluted karma is neither gloomy nor bright. So cyclic existence is uh, perpetuated by polluted karma. Wise ones who have realized emptiness directly do not create polluted karma and free themselves from uncontrolled rebirth. So Vasubandhu says, unpolluted karma causes the termination and the elimination of those three types of karma. So the, the um, gloomy, 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 the bright, gloomy, and the gloomy, bright. Okay? Since it is contrary to entering into the process of cyclic existence, Unpolluted karma is not included within the twelve links. Therefore, it has no fruition in samsara. In the consciousness that is an Arya's true path, realizing emptiness non-dually, the mental factor of intention is unpolluted karma. Okay, 
So it isn't that all the karmas that Aryas create are unpolluted, because Aryas still have polluted minds, but when they're in the meditative equipoise, non-duly perceiving emptiness, it's said that that mind is unpolluted. So what carries the, the negative karmic seeds or the, the, the seeds of negative karma at that time is the mere I, not the mental consciousness. So that mental consciousness in meditative equipoise is said to be pure. So that's why it creates this unpolluted uh, karma. But when the, the Arya comes out of meta, meditative equipoise, yeah, they can still have non-virtuous minds arise, but they're very brief and they, they're not really, they, they don't create the four uh, factors necessary to make a complete karma. Yeah. Although, well, I don't know. What about a stream enterer? The way the stream enters just are described, it sounds like sometimes they can create negative karma. Whether it's strong enough to throw rebirth, that I don't know. Okay, but they no, but they do say. I mean, at least the Theravadas they say that stream enters can have thoughts of the eight worldly concerns. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. They can create negative karma, but it doesn't have all four branches, so it's not going to create a rebirth. Yeah, but like a negative thought could still arise in the mind, but it's not going to last a long time. Yeah, because it specifies here specifically an Arya's true path realizing not emptiness non-dually the mental factor of intention is unpolluted karma. And then arhats and pure ground bodhisattvas also create unpolluted karma when they engage in other activities in post-meditation time. So it's implying that uh, aryas who are not arhats or pure ground bodhisattvas still could create negative karma, but not very powerful. Such karma by these uh, arhats and um, pure ground bodhisattvas is unpolluted, and and the uh, all the aryas when they're in meditative equipoise directly realizing emptiness. Such karma is unpolluted in that it is not created under the influence of ignorance. It is never non-virtuous, and it does not generate causes for rebirth. It is the remedy to the above three types of karma, leads out of cyclic existence, and gives rise to true cessations and nirvana. Until arhats leave their body, they will experience the results of previous karma, some of which may be painful. So they may have previous non-virtuous karma that is ripening before they leave their body, even though they are free from all the afflictive obscurations, and they may experience pain. However, they do not react to pain by generating more afflictions, and thus do not accrue new karma. 
how do we react to pain? Usually by creating more afflictions. <laughs> I don't like this. Why am I suffering? It should go away. Make this go away. I'm mad. I'm in a bad mood. Why is this happening to me? Okay. Um, pure ground bodhisattvas. Okay. When the bodhisattvas uh, realize emptiness directly, that's on the third path, the path of seeing. At that time, they start with the first ground or the first bodhisattva bumi. Okay. And that ground is there. And then the, the other, they follow sequentially all the other bodhisattva bumis. When they get to the eighth bumi, they have eliminated all the afflictive obscurations. So all the afflictions are gone. Yeah. And so that's why the eighth, ninth, and tenth bumis are called pure ground bodhisattvas. Yeah. Because um, they're... Uh, they are not going to be creating any negative karma because negative karma is only created under the influence of the afflictions and they've eliminated them even though they are not yet Buddhist. Okay? But they've eliminated, eliminated the same afflictive obscurations that the arhats have eliminated. But they say that Arya Bodhisattvas don't experience physical pain because of their karma and don't experience mental, uh, no, yeah, and they don't experience mental um, pain because of their wisdom. The first one, karma? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So um, when arhats and the pure ground bodhisattvas are out of meditation, they're in post-meditation, it says that they don't, um, the karma is unpolluted because they're not under the influence of ignorance. So the afflictive obscurations that have been eliminated, but the cognitive ones still aren't, but they're, when they, when they're going about their business, they, the illusion like appearance is so strong that they know the ignorance, the self grasping doesn't arise, Right. but the appearance is still there. Yeah. Because the appearance is, is a cognitive obscuration, but the ignorance has been eliminated, but the latency of ignorance is still there. Okay. Yeah. Although d- different people have different ideas too about what the cognitive obscurations are. <laughs> okay. So unpolluted karma also refers to the subtle intention that arhats and bodhisattvas on the pure grounds must generate for their physical, verbal, and mental actions owing to the presence of cognitive obscurations in their mind stream. Let me read that sentence again. Unpolluted karma also refers to the subtle intention that arhats and and pure ground bodhisattvas must generate for their physical, verbal, and mental actions owing to the presence of cognitive obscurations in their mind. Okay, so they still have cognitive obscurations, so they're not like Buddhas whose actions uh, flow without deliberate intention. Okay, so they, the arhats and pure ground bodhisattvas still have to generate an intention, but it's, it's something very, very subtle. 
it's a subtle intention because they're so habituated with with virtue. Okay. Unpolluted karma and the latencies of ignorance. So late, un, uh, late, the latencies of ignorance of a co- are a cognitive obscuration. So these two give rise to the mental body of arhats and bodhisattvas on the pure grounds. Buddhas do not have unpolluted karma because they have eliminated the cognitive obscurations. Being effortless and spontaneous, their actions are called awakening activities or trinle. These compassionate actions are a specific type of activity that is effective because of Buddha's great virtue. Their ability to successfully use awakening activities to benefit sentient beings depends on the accumulation of merit by those sentient beings and their karma connection with the Buddhas. But from the side of the Buddhas, they don't have to think, oh, I'm going to go benefit Joe Blow or Tashi Blow over here, you know? They just do it automatically. I've also heard of Aryas being... um, So they're... Okay, so, you know, to generate a a mental body, which I've heard it said sometimes that uh, even Aryas on the path of seeing can do. Yeah, here it's really emphasizing the unpolluted karma being from the pure ground bodhisattvas and the the arhats. So it could be, I think I'm remembering now, that the um, some Aryas can generate the uh, the mental body, but maybe not all of them right at the beginning, okay? In terms of highest yoga tantra, the mind of someone experiencing the fourth stage actual clear light has the mental factor of intention, which could be considered unpolluted mental karma because they've eliminated the afflictive obscurations, but they have still have the cognitive ones, very slight. When this person emerges from the actual clear light, he or she immediately manifests a pure illusory body, which is unpolluted in the sense that the mind associated with it is free from afflictive obscurations. This illusory body is considered a physical phenomena so perhaps its actions could be considered unpolluted karma of the body and speech. Okay, His Holiness throws in tantra. In very, you know, he's talking about something sutra, and then he'll throw in, well, in tantra, it's like this. Okay, so before we go on to the next section, are there questions, comments so far yet? Okay, this sentence kind of confused me. When it says, Buddhas do not have unpolluted karma because they have eliminated the cognitive obscurations. So all high-level Arya Bodhisattvas, Arhats, Buddhas don't create karma at all because they don't need any intention, right? Because they don't have any intention, and none of their actions produce rebirth in samsara. The the Tibetan term Trin Lei, Lay is actually the word, the same word for karma. 
Okay. But it's translated as like awakening activities. So that's what a Buddha creates. I mean, they still act, they still do things, but it's not uh, with an, an, a, a, you know, a conscious intention. Where the higher level bodhisattvas and arhats, their intentions are very subtle, but they're still creating unpolluted karma. So exactly. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering, do, do the prasangikas accept concentration restraints and unpolluted restraints? Because I've only come across that terminology in Vasubandhu, in the mm. treasury. Just wondering if you... Yeah, heard. I haven't heard anything specifically about it, but it would make sense to me that they do. It's just strange we never hear about it in yeah. Rim or in any other... <laughs> yeah. Well, they, you know, they list things. Many, and many times it happens. Things are listed and, and they're not explained. And it's kind of said, you know, that prasangikas go along with many of the things that the vibhasakas say, unless they state otherwise. So I haven't heard anything specifically. Um, I don't know what page it is in, in the book, but it's... The electronic version is 297, so it might be... It'll be 297 in here, too. Um, earlier, where Vasubandhu is citing these two situations where we create merit through certain material objects uh -huh. and accumulating karma. Um, and this is the part I'm really sincere about this question. I don't get how citing examples then can be reasons to prove the existence of an imperceptible form. That just makes no sense to me. Oh, okay. I don't get it. <laughs> because uh, the main argument is if you don't accept, if you don't uh, uh, have the idea of imperceptible forms, then it's very difficult to explain how somebody can... Uh, create karma when they're not there doing the action themselves at that time. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, if you create a karma by, by the seven substances or by asking somebody to do something or ordering them to do something, you don't, you could be halfway around the world, yeah, when they're doing the action. But when they complete the action, you create karma. So if you don't talk about imperceptible forms, it's difficult to figure out how the originator creates karma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have yeah. another question. Yeah. Remember, uh, this topic is an extremely <laughs> phenomena. <hidden> phenomena. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So it's along this line, too. Okay. So Let's imagine not the Buddha Hallet is going to be destroyed by an earthquake, but a prayer Hallet I've offered to gets destroyed in an earthquake. Mm -hmm. And so that stops the imperceptible form yes. in my body from from all that virtue. Out of oh, that. no, all the virtue you already created before it was destroyed, you still have that imperceptible form. Okay. But when the thing falls down in the earthquake, yeah. after that, Nobody else is, can use it to create virtue, so it's not the same. But we're still, because karma expands, uh -huh. then that virtue is still growing, right? Yes, that you created. Yes. I'll stop so I don't know, maybe you're, 
your uh, imperceptible karma. That's why it's good it's not made of form. Otherwise, you know, you could get very fat. <laughs> Boy, look at her. You know, she would be like, all that virtue. <laughs> uh huh. How do karmic seeds get erased? And do the Buddhas, how do they erase all their karmic seeds? Okay, that's the next section about purification. Okay? But basically, it's through the four opponent powers, and there's different levels of purification. The Buddhas, all the, the karma, uh, samsara karma is gone because of their realization of emptiness. So before we realize emptiness, we are shrinking the karma, we are preventing it from ripening, or if it ripens, it produces a uh, not quite strong action or yeah, result. But it's only when you, you know, can, can meditate on emptiness that you actually start removing them, the seeds from your mind altogether. I didn't quite understand when you said that... Um the mere eye carries the karma from life to life while the mm -hmm. mental consciousness doesn't. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that? I... Well, the mere eye exists, and at the time you're in mental, uh, usually they say it's the mental consciousness that carries the karma, okay? But when an Arya is in uh, meditative equipoise, non-conceptually directly perceiving emptiness, that mind has no affliction in it at all. It's a totally unpolluted mind. Yeah. So then what happens to all the karmic seeds on that mind? What happens to the seeds of the afflictions that haven't yet been uprooted? They can't, it can't be that mind that carries them because that mind is unpolluted. So you can't have the seeds of, of negative karma on that mind. But the mere eye is, you know, designated independence on the, the mental consciousness. So it's said that it carries the karma during those times. See, th this is, they have to explain this, why, how karma can go when you have an unpolluted mind. So they have to find a way to explain it, okay? So this is how they explain it, yeah. And so then when the person comes out of meditative equipoise, their seeds just jump back onto the mind stream. Oh yes, they, yeah. they do, you can hear them pop. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, bye. Mere eye. I'm going back to the mental conscious. But remember, the, the, the mere eye is imputed in dependence upon the mental consciousness. They're not two unrelated things. The, okay. so the mere eye is an abstract composite. What? The mere eye is an abstract composite. Yes. Okay. How <laughs> does this explaining where the karma, um, quote-unquote, resides during this meditative equipoise and emptiness differ from trying to find karma's true inherent existence. Like, I'm, I'm struggling because we're, we're saying it has to be there. And like, how is that different than... Oh, well, uh, well, because it's a conventionally existent phenomena, 
It hasn't disappeared. It isn't that you go into meditative equipoise and all of a sudden, you know, all your afflictions have disappeared, all the negative karma has disappeared, and then when you come out of your meditative equipoise, they all pop back in, you know, from out from outer space. You know, remember those those people who were causing the forest fires in California from uh, from their spaceship or something? Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, it can't be like that. It has to, you know, be something that that is, you know, where it's dependent like that that can carry it. It's like you're walking along, okay, and you're carrying something, and then you have to open the door with this hand, so you shift it to this hand and open the door. Something like that, you know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Are you sure you shift it to you put it on the top? I'm trying to give some analogy that I'm just making up. Yeah. Okay. But remember, this is an extremely <laughs> obscure phenomenon. <laughs> so don't expect me to know how to explain everything. Yes. First question. Sorry. If while offering service to the Sangha, our mind is non-virtuous, do we still create virtuous, imperceptible forms? Well... Probably a little bit, but it's marred. It's marred. Yeah. It may be this thing of uh, gloomy, bright karma. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's usually the motivation that that determines whether something's virtuous or non-virtuous. But when it comes to holy objects... And don't ask me this one. <laughs> yeah. If in relationship to holy objects, you automatically create virtue by the power of that object. I know it sounds like the object is inherently existent. I've made that argument too. But everybody I make that argument too says, no, there's a power to the, uh, to the holy object. But they say, you know, it's very difficult to create that karma because in all of samsara, very rarely do sentient beings ever have contact with holy objects. So when you think of, you know, we're sitting here surrounded by holy objects, how rare it is considering the countless number of beings there are in samsara. And they say that, you know, if you come in contact with a bodhisattva, even if you have a negative uh, thought towards that bodhisattva, it's still going to put a virtuous imprint on your mind. And they say that's because the, the, you know, bodhisattva will make a prayer to be able to benefit you in, in future lives. Okay. But, uh, you know, how, how that... I think... You know, after you die, if you, if you built a, um, 
a temple, uh, you know, and you're, you're getting the virtue from that, the imperceptible form. I would think, and SK, let me know what you think about this, that after you die, you don't get any more of that imperceptible form in your new rebirth because the body that created that form by building the, the temple and making the offering or whatever is no longer there. Well, the imperceptible form you already have becomes, you know, a having ceased. But I don't think, because, for example, if, uh, I mean, to create the full action of killing, if you die before the other person dies, it's not a complete action because the body you had when you did the action, you know, the life you had, the aggregates, your mental aggregates too, are no longer the same. So it it's not a complete action if they die after you. So it could be the same with the, you know, and, and uh, yeah, and your precepts, your precept body doesn't go on to the next life. So maybe, yeah, the virtue you, you create by, by building things and so on doesn't either. That's my guess. Yeah question different tact where do ghosts and spirits fit into the form realm and do they carry karma yes they they have karma they're sentient beings um some are in the hungry ghost preta realm and some are in the um asura realm the demigods huh in the form realm no i don't think so you uh, you know, there are devas there, but they're not ghosts and spirits. Only a monastic can have a precept body, right? Uh, no, lay people who take the five precepts also get precepts body, and anagarikas do. But I thought that the prasangika said that the karma travels, that Mirai carries the karma from life to life anyway. Mm-hmm. But that's the that it's not the mental consciousness; it's the mirror yeah. eye that's carrying it. So mm-hmm. I don't understand why it's important to emphasize this particular situation where an aria is in meditative equipoise on emptiness. If if the presentation is that that's where the karma is carried to begin with, do you understand? Because what I'm they usually say when you're alive that the mental consciousness carries the karma. Okay. That's the way it's usually presented. I would think you could equally say that the uh, that the um, mere eye carries the karma, but maybe you know to fit in with the lower tenant systems, they say that. You know, I, confusion was that the mere eye was in dependence on the body and the mind in the yes. same as an abstract composite. Yeah, and so, so when if the your body next, goes away, then doesn't yeah, and the and your eye. mental aggregates, both your your mental aggregates and your form aggregate. You know, when we die, you know, our our human body ceases and our human mental aggregates also cease. So what carries the karma to the next life is the mere eye. Are you saying the mere eye is established independence on the body of this life? No, it, 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 it's the mere eye 
can be established and dependent on whichever uh, body and mind there is. Or actually, the, the another way to put it, the, the, well, the general I is posited in terms of all your, all your eyes. <laughs> yeah. So it, you don't think, okay, the mirror eye is positive independence on the body and mind, but you lose one set of aggregates, you get another set of aggregates. It can be positive independence on that set too. Okay. And you still have the general eye. This, this is going to come in volume eight. So you got to wait for it a little while, but it's coming. Okay. Because... In each rebirth, we have a specific eye. And then we also have a general eye that is designated on the basis of all these individual eyes. So that general eye also goes to the next life. But your individual eye, when, when you die, Matt ceases. Okay, the, the, um, uh, hmm? The yeah, the, the specific eye of this life ceases. So that's Matt ceases. Then you're reborn as, who do you want to be reborn as? Okay, I don't know, whatever name you, you, you give it. Okay, somebody in a good realm who meets the Dharma, da 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 da. So that person, yeah, is, is another specific eye. Yeah, but because they have different aggregates. But imputed on the basis of all those things is the general I, and that's also going to be, you know, what carries the karma, because it isn't like, okay, Matt ceases, and then the next person in that mental continuum is to a totally, you know, different person. There's a continuity that goes through the, the general eye. Yeah, the general and mirror are pretty close, seems like. Well, except the, the general eye is, is uh, designated on the basis of all the specific eyes. The mirror eye is designated on the basis of the body and mind. So maybe there's some slight difference. Yeah, you think. I'm, I'm stopping. <laughs> these are all really good questions. And this is the way we should think about things and really ask questions and probe. It's just on topics like this, you know, I, I can't answer all the questions, and I've asked many of your questions to my teachers, and that's why I have this folder with all sorts of different answers. <laughs> okay. But thinking about these things sharpens your intelligence. Yeah. And, uh, and you do get different answers from different people. I mean, that's one thing I've been really coming across in, in, in writing the, the series with this holiness is, you know, I think, oh, here it is. It's explained like this. And then Geshe reads it, and he says, no, it's not like that. 
And I said, but it's in this, you know, I point to that book. Yeah, but that that's the text from Sarah J. Monastery. And Geshe-la is from, you know, Drepung Losaling. Yeah. And then Jeffrey is is teaching us, you know, the Jamyang uh, Shepa, um, uh, and he's from Drepung Gomang. And they all have different ideas on some things. Yeah. Because Lama Sankaba clarified a lot, but then these guys get in there and they have all their ideas and debate with each other. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's how you sharpen your intelligence is to go into all of that. Yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 is, it can be frustrating sometimes when you're writing something and like, just tell me the right answer, Geshe. <laughs> Well, there isn't one. <laughs> you know, different people say different things. Okay. 